Thank you to Miriam for sending that update and uh, important reminder um, that people who we're interacting with, people who are right around us, we can have such important opportunities to share truth and share the gospel with. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 20, that's where we'll be this morning, looking at the Ten Commandments. Last week we finished up our mini-series in the book of 1 Samuel, and um, so we're kind of in between series. Uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, Carrie and Robbie and I are planning to be in Ohio for a few days to visit family, and as John mentioned during announcements, uh, Chuck Flesher is going to be preaching for me next Sunday. Um, some of you met him earlier in the year. Uh, he came on a Sunday night and talked about the ministry that he works with. He's a retired pastor, but he works with an organization that ordains uh, chaplains for military chaplains, hospital chaplains, prison chaplains from independent Bible churches. And he'll be preaching next week. I'm excited to have him. He's actually from this area. I forget the high school. It's East Lynn High School that he uh, graduated from. And uh, so he's, he's from this part of the world. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for this opportunity to worship you, Lord. And it's so wonderful to see so many poor people here today. We know COVID has been going around through town. People have been sick from that. And Lord, we want to pray for people who are recovering, and we want to pray for people who might have it right now. Lord, we also want to pray for Steve Hall. Um, and we're not sure if it's a kidney stone or something like that, but a lot of pain right now. And Lord, we want to pray for healing. We want to uh, just join together and lift up Steve. And we're just so thankful for him and his family and pray that they can figure out very quickly what the issue is that's causing all this pain and they can get to feeling better and get the right treatment. Lord, we want to pray for Miriam Schmidt, who we saw this update from a few moments ago. Lord, and we just want to continue to pray for her ministry up in Canada. And uh, for people who she's working with and reaching, Lord, we want to pray for that. And Lord, lastly, we want to 
praise you for the birth of this new baby, for Parker, William. Lord, we praise you for new life and for this new baby. We want to pray for his parents, Morgan and Jesse. Lord, pray for his grandparents, aunts and uncles. Lord, such a celebration, such a great moment for the whole family. And so we pray for them as well, Lord. We pray for this child. We pray that from a young age, he know that you love him. Lord, we pray that he live a long, happy, healthy life, Lord. And we pray that he would be dedicated to you. Lord, we pray for our time as we're studying your word, that we be pointed to the gospel, pointed to truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Is the microphone still on for the... Because there's something... Sounds like we're inside of a computer. Um, it's incredible how influential the Ten Commandments have been in our society. They're the bedrock of Judeo-Christian morality. That sounds better. They have become part of our popular culture through art. Numerous paintings depicting Moses with a white beard being given two stone tablets. In 1956, Cecil B. DeMille made his epic film, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston. Actually, the second film DeMille had made about the Ten Commandments, he also made a silent film in 1923. We see the Ten Commandments in contemporary writings. What's more, the Ten Commandments have become a common motif for books and articles. There's the Ten Commandments of leadership, the Ten Commandments of finance, the Ten Commandments of grilling, Ten Commandments of weight loss, the Ten Commandments of cooking. Often written in a similar format to the King James Version, thou shalt not as the preface to the command. Moses being given the two stone tablets at Mount Sinai is perhaps the most commonly known biblical scene in our culture. Over the last few years, we've seen the Ten Commandments as a source of controversy as groups have brought lawsuits against courthouses and other places in the public square where the Ten Commandments have been displayed. Perhaps the most significant legal challenge came against a Ten Commandments display at the Texas State Capitol. It went all the way to the Supreme Court who ruled in 2005 that the commandments were not a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. While everyone has heard of the Ten Commandments, unfortunately, not everyone actually knows the Ten Commandments. In 2007, a study by Kelton Research found that more respondents could list off more ingredients of a McDonald's Big Mac than commandments in the Ten Commandments. Surveying 1,000 Americans, 80% knew that a Big Mac has two all-beef patties. Less than 60% knew that one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not kill. The survey also found that just 45% could recall the command, Honor your father and mother. While 76% knew that a Big Mac includes lettuce. The Ten Commandments are one of the most important sections of the Bible. So what we're going to do today is to give a little bit of background for the Ten Commandments, and then we will walk through the Ten Commandments. I said in the beginning that the Ten Commandments are an idea that is prevalent in our culture, but the commandments are not given in a vacuum. I make frequent references to the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis. The covenant included the promise of offspring, the promise of honor, and the promise of land. This was totally done at God's initiation. And Genesis famously records that Abraham 
believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So part of the promise was offspring. And we see that God delivered on that promise. The Israelites had grown into a vast multitude of people. And in the Exodus event, we see God also delivering on the promise he made to Abraham of land. At the beginning of Exodus chapter 19, the Israelites had arrived at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 verse 1 tells us that just three months after God had delivered them from Egypt, they arrived at Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai where God instituted his covenant with Moses. The covenant follows patterns of other covenants or treaties from the ancient world, beginning in chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, where it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so that's really a preamble to the covenant. God is making a statement about who he is. He is the redeeming God, the rescuing God. He is the God who fulfills his word. And he will make this covenant with Moses. And part of the basis of the covenant is in the law that God gives. In the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. The Ten Commandments are the beginning of that law. Now, it's not that the law was the basis for a person's right standing before God. As we said, the Israelites already were the people of God by virtue of having been chosen by God. And through Abraham, it was faith that was the basis of a person's righteousness. But as the people of God, in pursuit of the land that God had promised, the law was the way in which God wanted his people to conduct themselves in the land and in the world. There are several reasons for this. First, it was to distinguish the Israelites as God's chosen people. Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The law points to the holiness of God. The law shows us the righteous character of God. Since God is righteous, so is his law. There is nothing arbitrary about the law. If you were to continue reading in Exodus chapter 20, in Exodus after chapter 20, we get into sections that give specific commands for building the tabernacle, the tent structure which represented God's presence with his people during their desert journey. Most of the second half of Exodus revolves around the tabernacle, building it, the specific measurements and dimensions for it, the furnishings for it. Then you get into Leviticus, and there are laws given in regards to the sacrificial system, to the various Israelite holy days, to the priesthood. We see laws about jurisprudence and due process. Again, the law was good. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so with that little bit of background, we come to the Ten Commandments this morning. And with that, we'll jump right in. The first commandment, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
So the command begins with the Lord reminding the Israelites that it was he alone who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The plagues that God had brought upon the Egyptians showed God's power and dominion. The Lord God, who is the delivering and saving God, is not going to compete with the false gods of other religions. This first commandment is the logical starting place. Belief in the Lord. Without that, nothing in the rest of the law or the rest of the commandments matters to a person's salvation. The Lord does not accept second place. And it's a blessing that he does not. He is our creator and sustainer. He is the giver of life and purpose. For our society, we see in the first commandment that the Bible does not call for religious plurality. Now, yes, we do have to interact and engage and love people who might believe different things. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. But not everything is equally true. It is the Lord that is true. Without the first commandment, the other nine don't matter to our lives. We have to begin with a true belief in the true Lord. The second commandment, verses four through six. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This command forbids idols of any kind. Now, what is an idol? An idol here is an object that is made in the likeness of God, either of wood or of metal, anything that you're making that you are making for the purpose of worship. It was common in the ancient world to worship idols. It's still common today in certain places around the world. But the danger of idol worship in, the, in that worldview is the belief that the idol itself is a thing to be worshipped or that it possesses divine power. Part of the heart of idol worship is the manipulation of the gods. People would bring items or sacrifices before their idols, which they believed would ensure certain blessings. The Lord is indebted to no one. It's blasphemous to think that God can be beholden. And it's blasphemous to worship objects that are made by our own hands or by human hands as though those objects possess divine power. The Bible says that no one can see God. That's part of why creating idols is sin, because it's trying to do something that man cannot do. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Part of the second commandment also relates to the first. We are not to have any other gods before him. We are not to have any other gods in competition with the Lord. And idol worship violates that. God says that he is a jealous God. Now, jealousy is normally a vice. But jealousy is not a sin for God. Because God is jealous for what is his. 
for what he created and for what belongs to him. Well, most modern Americans, as I said, are not making physical idols. We can also make idols of the heart. We can make idols that we put on a pedestal above the Lord. This is one of the things I talk about just about as frequently as anything else. But the different idols that we have, the idol of money, of health, of family, of self. As John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. It is sin, and it is also leading us away from life and purpose as it goes away and leads us away from the true source of all that is good. The third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It seems when you study the background of this passage that part of the meaning of this third commandment is swearing oaths by the Lord's name. That a person could make such an oath and yet fail to follow through. God does not want his name invoked with falsity. However, this command is more broad than only applying to oaths. It also involves misusing the Lord's name. Psalm 29, 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus addresses God the Father and says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God's name is to be hallowed. God's name is to have reverence when we speak it. There are Orthodox Jews who will not use the word God out of concern that there's Never a time where they can truly say it with the totally reverent, with the total reverence that's due. So they might say something like the Lord, but they will not say the word God. Nor will they spell it. They'll put a G, then a dash, and then the letter D. It's a far cry from our society, where people oftentimes use the Lord's name not with reverence, but in vain. People use it as a profanity. People curse by the Lord's name. You hear it all the time. Some of us might even be guilty of it, but we certainly hear it all the time. We must keep in mind the awesome holiness of the Lord when we invoke his name. Quoting from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. So that is one aspect of this third commandment. But another way people speak the name of the Lord in vain is by misrepresenting God theologically. We misuse the name of the Lord when we speak for God in ways that are not true to how God has revealed himself in Scripture. People often speak about God and what they're doing is giving their opinion about how they think God should be. I hear people who talk about the love of God as though that gives a license to sin. That none of it matters because God is love. God is love. And we should praise him for that. But God is also holy and righteous and just. And when we emphasize one quality of God, such as God's love, to the exclusion of his other attributes, 
We are distorting God. That's just one example. We see the vanity of the human heart and original sin. God originally gave one commandment. Exodus chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But his word gets twisted. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He never said that. But then Eve responds by further misrepresenting the word of the Lord. Genesis 3, 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God gives the command. The serpent says, Did God actually say? First distortion. Eve says that they may eat of the fruit of the fruit of the trees, but they cannot eat or even touch the tree in the midst of the garden. Second distortion. God didn't say that they couldn't touch it. But misquoting and misrepresenting the truth of God. And then the serpent undermines God's word again. Genesis 3, 5. You will not surely die. Twisting and contradicting the word of God. Listen to how people talk about God. The things that they say about God. The theological claims they make about God. It's a pattern that constantly happens. Twisting his words. Speaking on God's behalf in false ways. Terrible sins. It's undermining the consequences of God's word. When we do that, we make God out to be a liar. But there is no deceit in the Lord. He is true to his word. And this is part of the reason why it's so important to have reverence for the word of God. Because people are imperfect, but God's word is perfect. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Unfortunately, our society has horrible biblical literacy. When we study the Israelites, we see that it had consequences for them. And we also suffer the consequences in our world for a lack of reverence and knowledge for the word of God. The fourth commandment. Beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is within them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We are to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. On the seventh day of creation, God ceases from his work of creation. And we are called to rest one day in seven. 
The command to keep the Sabbath actually predates the Ten Commandments. The Lord originally gives the command in Exodus chapter 16 when he is instructing the Israelites to collect bread. Every Friday, they would collect twice as much so that they could rest on the Sabbath. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So the rest of the Sabbath is intended for everyone who is within the Israelite community. Now, I'll pause for a second and make another general statement about the Ten Commandments and their uniqueness. God's law applies to everyone, that no one is above the law. It's not like that in all ancient religious systems. Rulers and kings did not have all the same laws applied to them. With the Sabbath... It applies to everyone. We also see that it is both a blessing and somewhat of a challenge. It's a blessing in that God gives us a day of rest. God tells us to rest. But there's also a challenge in truly keeping the Sabbath because it can be so tempting in taking a day off to feel like you can't do it, like you don't have time, like you'll get behind. Anyone else ever struggle with that? I don't have time to take a day off. I don't have time to rest. Farmers, I'm sure it's tough. It's a challenge. So many of us struggle on two extremes of either we work way too hard or we don't work nearly hard enough. It's so hard to find that balance, though. We are called to work hard. Hard work is a good thing. Work in the Bible predates the fall. But we must also rest well. It's a day that is set apart and holy. The heart behind the Sabbath is to trust in God's provision. That we can give of our time to him and that we will have enough. That we will get enough done. And that can be easier said than done sometimes. There's much more I could say on this subject. Lord willing, I'd love to preach a sermon sometime just on the subject of Sabbath. The fifth commandment, beginning in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This command starts to get at our relationships with other people. And it starts with the most basic, that of a child to his or her parents. As we are all under the dominion of the Lord, a child is under his or her parents. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 3 says, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. In the covenant community, children had a special relationship to their parents because it was the parents who were ultimately responsible for training their kids in the ways of the Lord. And I would add that that's still true today. That ultimately, it is on parents and it is an incredible challenge, an incredible blessing, an incredible calling to raise our kids to know the Lord and to know his word. And we do that as a community as well. That's why we do things like VBS. That's why we do things like Sunday school. But it's ultimately the job of the parents. Because they're the ones who have the most time, the most access, the most influence. It can be daunting. It can be challenging. But it's what the Lord calls us to. Sadly, we see generation after generation where parents do not teach their kids the ways of the Lord. 
And that generation knows less and less. And it becomes this vicious cycle from one generation to the next. Again, the knowledge of the Bible that we have societally is terrible. When there has never, ever been a time in history where there were more resources, more free resources online to study God's word, to know God's word. And yet we don't do it. Pam was showing me a Bible this morning that they bought. And I, I had never seen this before. It was amazing. You can take a picture because it's not a study Bible. It's a, it's a regular Bible. But you can take a picture and download an app with your phone. And the app will scan the photo and it'll bring up information on the passage in the app. That's crazy. Our issue isn't a lack of resources or opportunities. It's that we don't put in the time to study the word of God. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. In its historical context, part of the purpose of this command was the necessity of a child to take care of their parents in later years. It was essential to the social order. And this command concludes with saying that a person should honor their father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The point of that isn't in regards to an individual living a long life. The point of the command is the perseverance, perseverance of the people, of the community within the land. Yet we see in Israel's history that it doesn't happen because they don't follow the command. The sixth commandment. Did I get behind? I do that sometimes. Exodus 20.13 says, you shall not murder. During the ministry of Jesus, we find out that all the laws of the Old Testament boil down to love for God and love for people. In the Gospels, a lawyer approaches Jesus and asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So it's the idea that all 613 laws boil down to a love for God and love for people. That all the laws fit on one of those two tablets. Love God and love people. Murder violates the greatest commandment on both fronts. Obviously, it's a failure to love people, but it also shows a lack of love for God because man is created in the image of God. And we do not have the right to take the life of one of God's image bearers. Yes, there are military conflicts which are justified in the Old Testament. Cases of defense as unfortunate as they might be, lethal force can be justified. And the Old Testament has certain legal law violations which are capital offenses. But what this command is getting at is murder itself. The frivolous, indiscriminate, unprovoked taking of life in an unjustified way. Because life is precious and sacred. 
The seventh commandment, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. As with the Sabbath command, this command is rooted in creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God created marriage as a union between one man and one woman. As a result, adultery is forbidden. There's a lot of marriage language in the Bible about the relationship between man and God. In the Old Testament, we see Israel as the bride and God as the groom, where Israel is constantly unfaithful. In the New Testament, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And how does the Bible end? With a wedding. And at the wedding, all things are finally made right. Ephesians 5.25 tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which is meant to be a picture of sacrificial love. God is always faithful to his people. Adultery entirely undermines the union of marriage, and it undermines the structure of the family. The Eighth Commandment, verse 15, you shall not steal. Stealing dishonors the fruit of other people's labor and effort. Part of the sin of theft is that it's the belief that another's possessions are what's needed for your sustenance. Stealing dishonors the person from whom we're stealing. It undermines work where we could have legally and legitimately gained the money to acquire what we had desired. But it also dishonors God. And it dishonors the provision that he has made for us. And it's saying that it wasn't enough that we had to take instead. The ninth commandment, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. As with the other commandments, this one relates to legal proceedings. That a person could not bear false witness against another. When that happens, justice is undermined. I saw a story a few years ago about two men in New York who were convicted of kidnapping and sexual assault in 1991. Several years later, the woman finally admitted she had lied about it. Truth is essential to justice. The command also applies to lying in general, that we undermine our integrity when we deceive. As the commandments reveal to us what the Lord values... God is a God who values honesty because God is a God who exclusively speaks truthfully. There is no deception in God. It's because God is always honest and truthful that we can have confidence in the fulfillment of his promises. God has spoken what he will do. The Tenth Commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, it's not a sin to want something, but covetousness here is coveting that which is not yours. So you shouldn't want your neighbor's house or his spouse. Once again, the Ten Commandments are God's introduction to the law. And as we've already said in our study Jesus says that all of the commandments, including these ten commandments, boil down to our love for God and to our love for people. 
And it undermines our love for people when we want to take from them, when we want what is theirs, when we are jealous of what they have. Anytime you have a 10-point sermon, there's always a lot to chew on. That's why I usually try to do three. But how are you doing with the Ten Commandments? I'm not sure if I've ever done this at this church, but when you look at these commandments, how are you doing at following them? Do you ever take the Lord's name in vain? Don't lie. Do you ever lie? I asked the kids of that one at VBS. I said, who's ever told a lie? If your hand's not up, you're lying right now. Don't covet. Ever break that one? Yes. Don't murder. You might be thinking, okay, I'm good on that one. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares anger with our brother to covet to murder. It's a much higher standard. We make so many justifications to be angry or to look down at other people. We break all of the commandments. And those are just the basics. Sins that we actively do. We cannot follow God's commands. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus kept all 10 commandments and all 613 commandments. He kept the entirety of the law perfectly. He was righteous and holy and good. And the righteousness that we cannot earn, Jesus gives to all who believe in him, who trust in him. To know that he is the righteous savior who makes the unrighteous righteous, who makes the ungodly godly, who makes the unholy holy. The Ten Commandments were the event which instituted the giving of the Old Covenant. Jesus ushered in the New Covenant. The New Covenant is not given to us as a law, but as a Savior. And where the law of the New Covenant is to love God and love people. The New Covenant was not given with stone tablets, but with flesh and blood. Jesus instituted communion as a sign of that new covenant. In a moment, if the people who are helping with communion want to come forward, the deacons and bishops. Jesus gave us communion as a reminder of the new covenant that he was bringing into the world. It is a picture of the gospel that Jesus' body was broken for our sins. His blood was shed for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Jesus kept the commands that we could not keep. He kept the law that we could not follow. And so, as we prepare for communion, I will begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son who has come into the world. Lord, we thank you that we are able to remember his death and remember the life that comes through following him. And that we partake of communion with joyful hearts. Lord, may we... Be people who are constantly growing in our knowledge of you and our love for you. May we follow you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, when we do communion at this church, we do open communion, which means that it is open to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior.